are some facts for you. More than half the population of the world is female, yet only one-fifth of publicly elected positions globally are filled by women. It's not like women in positions of power are an unknown to us. There's Catherine the Great, Joan of Arc, Queen Isabel of Spain. More recently, there's Indira Gandhi, Golda Meir, Benazir Bhutto. Not to mention, of course, Angela Merkel and Jacinda Ardern. Why, even the Philippines has had two female presidents. And yet, the political landscape the world over remains a less-than-friendly territory for women. Joining me to talk about this landscape is Philippine Senator Risa Ontiveros, only one of a handful of women in the legislative body of 24. She's a strong proponent of equal rights and a vocal critic of the current populist president of the Philippines. My very first political memory, I was 12. My parents, siblings, and I joined this noise barrage just in our garden with pots and pans way back in 1981. By then, my parents, like many middle-class people who at first had voted for Marcos, gradually turned opposition. And I felt that sea change in our whole clan, family reunions at my uncle's house. All of us cousins would look over the balcony outside my cousin's room to the dining room below where our parents would be talking. We'd watch the, the lazy Susan on their dining table turning this way and that as they pass the food among themselves and talk about Marcos. And that conversation, you know, really inexorably turned opposition over the years. So by 81, we were among, it turned out, many families in what was then called Greater Manila Area, which joined, you know, what turned out to be a really loud noise barrage. But I became an activist as a teenager in high school. And then even after graduation from college, long-time community organizer, peace movement, full-time activist, and then a founding member of uh, Akbayan Party. And I never, never thought I'd end up in formal politics, in electoral politics. Only now, only in the last, uh, what, less than two decades. It was really a series of paradigm shifts because I was of that generation whose instinctive reflex towards elections, especially those that Marcos controlled all throughout the martial law dictatorship, our reflex was simply to boycott. Have you found it a welcoming space? <laughs> um, yes and no. Yes, because the same idealism of our youth, of my generation, yeah. and even more so of the younger activists now, the same uh, dreams and agenda that we were fighting for outside the state now, in the past two decades, we've been, you know, trying to learn the ropes of fighting for them also within the state, as it were. Have so, you found the culture that you've gone into like that in the legislature very masculine? Yes, and that's part of the non-welcoming nature of, you know, the space I work in now. It's not only in terms of the opposition and really the obstinate blockading of women and gender bills, the institution itself, although it's been the, you know, the subject of a series of electoral reforms in the past few decades, it is very macho. It's very, in, in many ways, misogynistic. 
And the things that the, the changes we fight for in legislation, we also have to fight for in terms of the change of the political culture in the institutions themselves, where we are waging these legislative battles. So they are not just legislative political struggles, they're also cultural struggles. Could you give us some examples maybe that you've had to deal with and how you face those challenges? Well, one unforgettable example from my work in the House of Representatives was when I was a a first-time representative, there was a a senior, a third-termer there who requested the favor that I ask Eta Rosales, our uh, senior uh, party list rep at that time, to draft him a letter for some agenda or other. So I, I agreed. And then she too, you know, she drafted the letter for him. So the next day, I gave him her draft. And, you know, he said to me after reading it, he said, sweetheart, this is not the kind of draft that I need. So, you know, my my ears really started to to burn. And I said to him, I'm not your sweetheart. So he incorrigibly said, oh, excuse me, uh, darling, this is not the kind of draft I need. Yeah. So I really raised my voice and practically shouted at him. He said, I'm not your darling. And, you know, he was quite taken aback that he went to the the other side of the of the session hall. He went away from me. No? Another time also from the House was again when a senior representative, when we were debating about the then uh, cheaper medicines bill, which we finally passed into law, he countered one of my arguments by, by I forget the exact preceding debate, but he said something like, well, you know, if you if you want to compare this this bill to a hairdryer, uh, so he was trying to, yeah, he was trying to bat my argument back at me by using what he thought was a stereotypical woman's image. So it, right. the, these may seem small examples, but they really undergird the, the way that male legislators in particular and a very male institution try to uh, diminish, to minimize women's participation and contribution in the legislative process and to do this by by using those stereotypes those image as if really to assign the lesser value to women's role in politics in in governance and even in activism itself because this is a challenge also faced by women comrades even in civil society and right. wow let's even begin to speak about our sisters in the private sector they have their own struggles there as well how do you then navigate through that without alienating them to the point of not wanting to deal with you at all? Well, sometimes you have to alienate them in the moment. You just have to just bat their their BS back at them to show them that it is not acceptable and you're not going to stand for it. That as peers, as fellow legislators, they'd better debate with you on the issues and not try to diminish your points by diminishing your person as a woman and 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 as a legislator. And in, in any case, they cannot afford to not deal with you, not deal with me either as a woman, because there are only a certain number of legislators at any one time during any one Congress. Right. And even when we were in the opposition uh, before in the House of Representatives, and now it's also in the Senate, Strangely, and I I don't think very positively, there are only two dozen in numbers. Women make up less than one third, but that's still seven. So even if they may take offense at my taking offense, still, I have to, I have to make it, have to make it of record. Have you noticed any changes in the last few years that you have been part 
of that political body from the work that you've done and the other women that are part of it? It's important you ask also about the other women because I'm not saying that all men are sexist pigs or that all women are feminists. But those of us who are conscious about the need, we we really seek to make common cause. And so that could account for some of the slow, painful changes over the past years in the way that uh, legislators, including male legislators, have engaged us on uh, the various women and gender bills and resolutions, the way that they've engaged with us on the proposals we've made in terms of the budget provisions over the past several years and and the way they they relate with us or they relate with me also from day to day. So they can't anymore pretend that this big purple elephant in the room doesn't exist, which is that whole body of arguments about their sexism and misogyny and then our insistence about uh, gender sensitivity, about recognition of the women and feminist agenda. Has it been your experience that the women in uh, the legislative body have been able to help each other along or no? There have been times, and it's been really wonderful when those moments occur. They're unforgettable. For example, I think it was three years ago that all the women of the Senate across the majority-minority divide united to co-author a resolution I initiated on behalf of Senator Laila Dilima, who was then under yes. heavy attack and you know growing persecution by the government on very sexist and misogynistic lines. One of the fiercest critics of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte, Senator Laila Dilima's in police custody. She's being accused of taking bribes from detained drug lords. Two supposed sex videos featuring Dilima and her driver, who has been tagged as Dilima's bagman. Dilema spearheaded an investigation into the rampant extrajudicial killings that have resulted from Duterte's war on drugs. Dilema, she screwed her driver and screwed the nation. Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte. Ambition was good, but her sexuality pulled her down. And she is now more than three years already in, under unjust detention. But that moment, the women majority senators also closed ranks against the sexism and misogyny that was uh, used against her and the weaponization of mass media and political contest against her. But there are also too many instances which, you know, bring very sharply home to me that this is not always the case. And it it's one of the more painful things to experience in my political work. Uh, I understand where some of them are coming from at different times, but I I still wish, and I'm working uh, with other sisters for that moment, that in political contest, when the very personhood and dignity of a woman as a woman is under attack, that all of us must close ranks against this. How do you do that with Mm. a president that is known for his misogyny and who makes such remarks about women's sexuality so blatantly Mm -hmm. and so openly. He puts them Mm -hmm. down. He makes jokes about rape, about Mm -hmm. abuse. There is such a blatant disrespect for women in the way that he moves through the political sphere. Mm -hmm. How do you even combat that? Exactly. That is at the heart and at the crown of our present problems. President Duterte has um, made his office, the highest office of the land, the platform for making sexism and misogyny normative 
in our civic our uncivil civic culture now making it normative for the tone and the manner of political contest he has aside from the values of human rights and national sovereignty and democracy itself he has made the value of a uh, gender sensitivity we, which we thought we'd made gains on in the past several decades of internalizing them among Filipino citizens and institutionalizing them in the Filipino systems and structures it's under such heavy and sustained unrelenting assault and he's right at the forefront of that his whole style of governance has really been shock and awe trying to yes. instill fear in the hearts of individual citizens and various organizations and institutions of citizens and has been contaminating all societal spaces including social media it's part of his whole macho style of governance fear humiliation violence and as usual he's making women the the easiest targets the easiest to blame scapegoats and you know we'll just not have it but all the more that women stand up to that including senator Laila VP Lenny Maria Ressa former yes. ombudsman Carpio Morales former chief justice Sereno and many other women who are politically active they may not be elected or in high appointed positions but who organize or individually have spoken out and stood up he has made it a point to try to make each of us you know exhibit abc of his gallery of filipinos who dared speak up raise our heads or our voices and he'll he'll make us exhibits of what he will do to those who take similar action so it's really very difficult but since that seems to be one of the greatest points of pain and yes. reprisal then it seems also therefore that that is the point where we should continue to reinforce uh, that right. breach keep on pushing back and fighting back from that point you women you are deprive me of my freedom of expression you criticize every sentence or word i say even if i am just a president I'm trying to bring you to the limits of despair. Do you feel that his actions and those that have come with him that this has set you back or mm-hmm. is this just revealing a maybe undesirable truth about the society in which you have to operate? Yes, both Marga. Things we thought were could be taken for granted already have been under such heavy attack and have been revealed to be so weak or needing of reinforcement what the president has been doing reveals a very ugly part of his persona as a leader as one of the uh, speaking of exhibits a one of the exhibit a's of exhibits a of the current wave all over the world of populist strongman authoritarian leaders but it also tells us a very painful truth about ourselves as a people and our own cultures here in the philippines the country itself has had two female presidents yes. mm-hmm. and yet if you look at the number of women who run for public office it barely yes. hits 20% and the increase has been very tiny compared mm-hmm. to 10 years ago why yes. do you feel that it's 
Well, and you're right about the numbers. Even in the Senate, uh, we noted uh, during the centennial of the Senate a couple of years ago that our greatest number then was only eight. I mean, in in a hundred years, and uh, only once had there been a Senate president pro tempore and once also a Senate majority leader who were women, never yet a Senate president. And, you know, at the national level, we do even worse than our sisters at the local government levels. Uh, Data from, I think it's the Philippine Commission on Women will show that, but even there at best, only up to 35%. As you go up, Across the branches of government, executive, legislative, even judicial, as you ascend, the percentage lowers to 25% and then the 20% that you noted, Marga, at the national level. There are so many built-in disincentives to women for political participation, leadership, and decision-making. Our whole, we call it in Filipino trapo, traditional politics very feudal, so personality-oriented. And then because of the lack of electoral reforms and implementation of the existing reforms, the openness of political contests to undue influence of money, politics. And then our, our whole cultures that we've been talking about, the sexism and misogyny in Philippine culture. Even when you look at the social protection sphere, it's more difficult for women, especially women bearing multiple burdens of discrimination and disadvantage. We already have the sex and gender aspect. You have the class aspect. If there's a difference in abilities, there are ethno-linguistic differences and so on and so forth. It is that much more difficult for women, especially even, uh, and also when we come to uh, have our own yes. families, you know, the old, the historic and false divide between so-called productive and reproductive labor and the way those are differentially valued and not valued in our economy makes it all the more difficult for women to sally forth into the formal political and electoral arena. So there's a lot that we women also who are in right. in politics and governance, we have so much to work on in order to open the space further so that politics and governance is more of a level playing field, both for women and men, and of whatever sexual orientation and gender identity and expression. I guess what you said there, it does explain, in a way, how this matriarchal society, how it can coexist with machismo. As long as women fulfill that role as mothers and homemakers, then... In that, they can take the lead, but everything else, the man is primary. And upholding that image of a so-called matriarchal society, even in the face of so much proven sexism and misogyny, makes it easier to make excuses for the way that world, our world is divided into the so-called productive and uh, reproductive Mm -hmm. spheres. As you said, so long as we women stay in our proper place, They say we can have our say here. And yet, even in that so-called matriarchal world, even in the world of reproductive work, there there are so many issues that women are still uh, struggling about. And there's so much that has to be corrected there that have served too long as a justification for the unequal treatment across the sexes and genders. Did you see that study that said that women, the countries that had women leaders did better in handling the pandemic? 
They do better on the health response. They do better on the economic response. And they do it not by strangling the democratic processes, but in fact, using the democratic processes, engaging their citizens' participation in the democratic processes, and therefore for the long term, actually strengthening their public health system and strengthening their uh, potentials for productivity and more equity in their economies. Wow, you know, that proof should really, I'm sorry to say, slap the faces of all those dictators and dictator wannabes out there or in here. Why do you think that is? What are your thoughts on that? Well, if I think if we place the examples of those women leaders across the stage from, we spoke about President Duterte earlier, and others like him, leaders like him, who have also been failing miserably on their COVID-19 response, I think it would not be a simplistic argument to say that those more democratic impulses on the part of these women leaders, those more participatory impulses, that wisdom they they begin from, that COVID-19 is primarily a health crisis and therefore must primarily also be responded to by public health responses and reinforced by economic responses, and as much as possible, always through those democratic processes with which their citizens have a wide buy-in. You know, right. uh, it, it, it means that uh, their tendencies as leaders who happen to be women, coming from uh, the child-rearing they must have experienced, the socialization they must have experienced in their families, in their educational uh, and professional backgrounds, uh, has enabled them to make the right and effective response to the crisis. And I hope and I believe that they will be therefore rewarded by their publics uh, if and when they stand for election again because they serve their publics so much better at this time of, of such an existential uh, crisis. And it, it so happens that they are not men, they are not macho leaders, they did not employ the same heavy-handed, militaristic, un- or anti-democratic means employed by those men leaders standing across them on this stage. I'm really looking forward to the time, especially for you younger women, Marga, and then our daughters and the other women who will follow after us, that we don't have to keep making the same argument so laboriously over and over again. But, you know, I give thanks to our grandmothers and our mothers who went before us in this struggle because they enabled us to survive until this point in time. They took the first blows to that glass ceiling. They dealt the first punches and kicks to that door, which have enabled us to stand beneath that ceiling and before that door now and keep on smashing at it, keep on hammering at it, keep on trying to keep the spaces open, especially for the younger sisters who are coming after us because they see even more, they celebrate even more, they dream even more than us. They're inspired by people like Jacinda Ardern and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, yeah. Kamala Harris, and all of them. And I know, I believe, I'm so sure they're, they're going to win this. If your daughter said to you in a few years, 
that she would like to go into politics, what would you say to her? I'd say I'll get out of politics first because I don't believe in political dynasties. And anyway, I have a career carved out for me in my mind anyway. I'll go back to my first love of theater and music. (laughs) And I'll continue trying to help shape new generations of young activists, young politicians. You know, I, I told all my children when we were talking before about what courses would they take, what work would they do. I always told them and still believe until now, just follow your bliss. Find what it is that you love most. Be excellent at it. That will be your service. And through your service to other people, that's, you know, that's how you'll have a a happy life. And if her own bliss is on the political path or any other path, then go for it. That's how we women will reconquer the world. You mentioned your background was in theater. Did you find that useful in going into politics? You know, my training in theater have really given me such irreplaceable lessons about being in the moment, about speaking from the heart, speaking from the gut, about knowing that there is an audience that I have to sense, I have to listen to, and I have to speak with. So, you know, even talking about this with yeah. you now, I, I see, wow, you know, these are things I should never forget as an activist and that I should not forget also now uh, in my work as a politician. Do you feel there is a place for all voices in the political sphere? Like some will call you, you know, a leftist or they will say yeah. that uh, the political yeah, landscape is being infiltrated but by those who might otherwise have been called terrorists. Uh, I think we have to invite those who may be attracted to terrorism now because they are disenfranchised, they are alienated, they suffer economic and political injustice. We have to make the case again to them why democracy is still, though imperfect, yes, is still the better way than any terrorist action. I think Marga now is a moment in our national histories and in world history that uh, democracy as we've known it is being very fairly uh, called to account. And we have to make its case again against this wave of populism and authoritarianism. And I, I say this as a proud democratic leftist. And there are so many changes we dream of for the Philippines and the world that I believe we need not make excuses for. And in fact, we should continue to struggle for. And of course, there is and must be a space for all voices. My gosh, that was the original dream of democracy, having a buy-in among all of these voices about the rules of the game, but continuing to evolve because on those democratic stakes lie not only our survival against COVID-19, lie not only our survival against a threatened Great Depression, such as we have not seen in the last century, but yes, the survival of societies where each individual human being has an inherent right to life, to dignity, to the rights and freedoms, which is why we enshrine them in our constitutions in the first place. Something very well worth fighting for, something we cannot lose.
And that was our conversation with Philippine Senator Risa Ontiveros. We hope it's given you food for thought. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the podcast so that we can put more episodes together for you, please visit our Patreon page and become a patron. www.patreon.com forward slash about that the podcast. Other details are in our show notes. Please do share our links and subscribe so that more people can find us. Until next time, I'm Marga Ortigas, wishing you all good health and well-being.